week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Sup, Doc? What's up? <laughs> How are you, Christina? I'm bouncing. Oh, good. You're excited, huh? I am. We, I have, am. we have a guest in studio today. We sure do. One of your favorite people. One of my favorite people. That's why I'm bouncing. Yes, I can understand that. Well, it's not for us. Well, I always bounce for us, but, you know, I bounce more when we have fun guests, too. Okay. Well, I'm happy about that. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide, along with Christina today, as we travel through yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy as we explore ways to achieve optimal health. Today, we're going to be speaking with Douglas Kretsch. He's an oriental medicine doctor, licensed acupuncturist. He has a diploma in homeopathy. He's a teacher, a lecturer, a researcher, and he has a very unique way of looking at illness and healing, and he is trying to change the very way that we practice medicine. We're going to learn about that today, but before we meet Doug, how do people get in touch with us, Christina? Thanks, Glenn. At any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you're listening to this um, on a device, your iPhone or your Android, you can also simply call us by calling us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave your contact information back so that we can answer your questions. Thank you so much, Glenn. Oh, you're welcome. So, uh, at this point, I would like to introduce to all of our viewers, Dr. Douglas Kretsch. Welcome, Doug. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me, Christina and Glenn. Hello, Doug. Thanks for coming to play in our sandbox. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very jealous that you get to be there. <laughs> So, Doug, as the medical guide, I always like to give our audience uh, a little view of where we're going to go today. So we're going to learn a little bit about you, why you became a healer. We want to know about some of your training. And then we want to get into the real work that you do in terms of how you practice medicine, uh, the way you look at it, how you work with disease and how you take care of people, and what your interests are in changing the whole process of medicine. Is that all right? That's Great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a, just to take about three minutes to cover everything, right? I, I was hoping it'd be more like one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank our very special guest, Dr. Kretz. <laughs> that was quite fun. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm sure we learned a lot today. <laughs> so, Doug, when did you decide you were going to become a healer? What were the influences? Well, back when I was a young kid, I used to read medical journals all the time. I was very interested in medicine, very interested in how things worked and why they didn't work. And uh, 
About the time I went to uh, college, we had some incidents in the family, some tragedies, and uh, kind of set everything back for a while, quite a while. And uh, I later took took up that same interest uh, to get into medicine. Not in the same way I thought I would get into it, but uh, instead of going through allopathic medicine route, I chose alternative medicine, being acupuncture, Chinese herbs, homeopathy. Okay. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, try and combine why integrative medicine, and I know you have a lot of interest in that part of the process. What, what was your training? Although, we, you know, we've, t- we've talked with uh, other homeopaths. We've talked with Dana Ullman and Lori Grossman. We've talked with other acupuncturists, uh, Dr. Dan Diamond and Dr. Mikio Sanke. Tell us about your training. In terms of acupuncture, is that what you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. In terms of acupuncture, we go through about, I went through about 3,200 hours of training in the field of acupuncture, which included using Chinese herbs, moxibustion, electrostimulation. And during my training in acupuncture school, I actually took courses in homeopathy. Um, After graduating from acupuncture school, I went on to further my education as an OMD, Doctor of Oriental Medicine. That was one of the first doctorates in Chinese medicine. And uh, I found that it was quite fascinating because my thesis for the OMD was on the integration of Western and Chinese medicine. And then after this, I went back to school again in 1991 uh, to the homeopathy uh, once again, uh, looking at the College of Homeopathy and studying under a Dr. Trevor Cook, who is the Queen's homeopath. Mm. The Queen has a homeopath? She does. Really? This is the Queen of England? It, she's, he's right there with her. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> I actually was friends many, many years ago with uh, one of the Queen's homeopaths a uh, very long time ago. No. But let's so let's go. You also went to China to study. I did in 1987. I wanted to find out how does acupuncture really work. I mean, I had already gone through the courses and I felt confident that it would work because going back a step, I actually used acupuncture to help me from an injury just after returning from medical school. And I was so very impressed on the first treatment that I thought this was my field. I have finally found it. And uh, I had gone to Western Medical School out of the country, and my family was involved in one of the first Ponzi schemes. And so I had to return after a period of time in medical school and uh, return home and rethink everything and uh, began once again. But I took a job and I injured my back and compressed a couple of vertebrae and had two herniations. And I went through, I went to osteopathic doctor, I went to a chiropractor, and uh, I went to a orthopedic surgeon. And six months later, I was still in a lot of pain. And I was taking classes at UCLA in nutrition. And a young woman came up and asked me, if I was in pain? And I said, yes, I am. Uh, and she gave me a card to an acupuncturist. And I said, I, I don't think so. I'm actually okay. 
uh, I hadn't even thought about acupuncture at that time. And uh, at, towards the end of the class, four or five weeks later, she said, I see you're still in pain. And she said, why don't you take this card? And I said, I think I'm okay. And she said, why are you so stubborn? And mm-hmm. she was a Chinese uh, woman. And she was actually working for an acupuncturist. And I took the card and I set it on my desk for about two to three weeks. And I finally thought, why am I so close-minded? And I called the acupuncturist, made an appointment. And on that first treatment, I realized this was my path. It was absolutely fascinating. It went along with everything I had done in earlier in life. I was a martial arts teacher for 15 years. And just the whole concept of chi, it all made sense. And so from there, I went straight forward into acupuncture school and received my education. And going back to your, your question about China, after graduating, I went to China and lived there for a period of three, four months and uh, went, to, went and studied in two hospitals. One was a traditional Chinese hospital and the other one was a Western hospital. Each of them incorporated the other system. But the Chinese hospital incorporated 75% with Chinese medicine and 25% being allopathic Western medicine. The allopathic hospital used 75% allopathic medicine and 25% Mm -hmm. Chinese medicine. And I I got to work in several different wards and I saw the difference in the outcome uh, when the patients were treated with both systems. And I was just so thoroughly impressed to watch patients that had strokes in the stroke wards at the two different hospitals with the Chinese medicine. I saw them getting up in two to three weeks. And that impressed me because in the Western hospital, they were still bound to the wheelchairs five, six, seven weeks later. I hadn't even attempted to get up yet. So, and I saw this in the different wards. So when I came back from this training, I felt so very confident in the system that I was studying. Brilliant. Uh, can you answer in about two or three sentences uh, how acupuncture works? Chinese medicine is based on a series of, is based on a system of qi. Qi flows through the body, and the way it flows through the body is in channels, in meridians. And these channels and meridians flow from the, all the way from the head down to the toes. And so we can use these meridians to locate points where the chi isn't flowing and we can activate that chi flow. Um, we can use a point on the foot to activate chi in the head. Uh, mm. So Chinese medicine is, is, is based around the system of chi flow. And so as an acupuncturist, we want to find where this chi flow has stopped. We might call that chi stagnation. A person may have chi deficiency. And we look at the we look at the the patient and try to determine where that chi flow has stopped. What channel is it stopped in, or what series of channels is the chi stopped? And we uh, base our treatment on looking at the tongue and pulse, the history. We look at the skin color. We ask about defecation, urination. We ask a lot of questions, and then we develop a program to treat what we find according to Chinese medicine. You also, thank you for that. 
We went into uh, the concept of research. Now, many people that go into oriental medicine, Western medicine, homeopathy, they don't always get into research, but research seems to be a very important part of your whole process. What interested you or what influenced you specifically in getting into research as, as an important part of what you do? Well, I think the first, I could answer that by the fact that I went to Western Medical School, I had a, a basic understanding of the Western philosophy in terms of how we approach disease, how we treat disease. And I was fascinated with this, but I saw many shortcomings even while I was going to school. When I came back and became an acupuncturist, I know that acupuncture has shortcomings as well. But if we could integrate the two medicines, then I thought this would be very advantageous for the patient. And what brought that about was I had a young, a young man, his name was Rob. He was one of my first difficult patients who had pheochromocytoma. It can be a genetic disorder or acquired disorder. And I, I was floored. I didn't quite know what to do. So I ended up writing a geneticist by the name of James Watson, who had received the Nobel Prize for the mapping of the gene, and asked him if he was aware of anybody doing research for this particular disease, or if he was aware of how to understand this disease according to the gen on a genetic basis. He wrote back and he said, unfortunately, I'm not familiar with the disease and don't know any of the other researchers who are re researching this disease. And he said, I not sure about the triggering. Back at that time, I felt that genes are important. Of course, they're the basis of who we are, how we think, what we do, but it's not the full answer. There had to be more to it than that. And Chinese medicine taught me that. And I, I began to dig my heels in and in terms of integrating the two medicines at that point. And that was about a year into my practice. And then, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, just for our audience, uh, pheochromocytoma is usually, my understanding and memory of it is it's a tumor that usually produces uh, excessive amounts of adrenaline and epinephrine, which creates processes in the body that are not conducive to happy lives. A very unhappy life. This, this young man was 19 years old in college, and he had severe sweats, anxiety attacks, insomnia, heart palpitations. He, he had very difficult time going through college, but the acupuncture and herbs actually helped to calm a lot of that down and helped him to get through college, but it wasn't the full answer. Okay. So you still have uh, other influences on research. Personal? Well, I had a second occurrence um, when I had my first cancer patient, I was so absolutely overwhelmed by the symptoms that this patient was exhibiting from the chemotherapy, from the cancer, that I didn't sleep too well for two to three weeks. I thought out of the thousands of doctors she chose, she could have chosen from, she chose me. Mm. I have to be responsible. And so once again, I dug my heels in, but this time I dug my heels in for seven years. And I did research in cancer and began to understand how cancer really works. In terms of my limited understanding uh, of, of the sciences, 
And from that, I, I developed a program and received a grant uh, to continue developing this program and treat patients that were referred from Cedar sinai And that, that was my second big hit. And then I had a third hit. And all of these added up to me taking a strong interest in integrating the medicines and understanding the mechanisms of disease that go far beyond uh, what we're taught in acupuncture school or in Western medical school. And that occurred when my wife and I uh, decided to have a child. I married late and we decided to have a child. So we went to see an OBGYN and we sat there for about 15 minutes and he stood up at the end of our conversation and said, uh, well, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that you're attempting to have a child at this age. You're going to have a child that has autism, Down syndrome, or birth defects. He said, you need to stop that ridiculous thinking. And he said, you need to adopt a child. And he stood up and walked out of the room. And my wife started crying. And wow. it was the first time I had really been upset with the doctor's approach. I understood all of the all of the issues involved with having a child late in life. And as we walked out, I told my wife, I said, don't worry. I said, we'll have a healthy child. And she said, you can't, you can't promise me that. And I said, you've forgotten who I am. Now, <laughs> now I had to tell her that I had to make her feel good. But that left me with a huge responsibility of actually following up on that. And with that, I began to do extensive research, most intensive research I had done yet to find out how could I reduce the chance, the risk of birth defects? How could I increase the chances of having a healthy child? Um, is, is there a science that'll help me do this? And in my research, I found epigenetics. And from there, I dug my heels in the field of epigenetics and developed a program for my wife and myself. Um, and I said, we need to stall having a child for three months. And we can take this program I've developed. It took me three months to develop a program. And I said, we, we can now start, but we need to take this program first. And then we conceived and had a healthy, wonderful child. Beautiful. Now, one of the things that's important to me, Doug, and I think it's important to you also, is as we try to integrate medicines, it's important to get feedback. So after you developed your program, you did the research, and you went through the program, you had a beautiful child, did you go back to this OBGYN doctor and say, uh, here's something you should start thinking about before you talk like that anymore? What I did do, I, I went to actually three doctors. This was in Oregon. I went to three doctors and presented them with research. Um, I actually made an appointment with one doctor. I wasn't sick. I just wanted to have an appointment with this doctor, a female doctor. And, uh, <laughs> and I asked her, are you aware of epigenetics? Um, do you know how this works? And she said, well, you're not here for that reason. What's your problem? And I said, my problem is, is I can't get doctors to listen. I said, well, <laughs> this time I'm paying out of pocket and we have a half an hour and let me give you some research. And I talked to her about, at that time, I talked to her about work done from Oxford University on uh, molecular mimicry. And I said that a lot of your patients may have 
some of these conditions they have, but you're, you're diagnosing it in a way that doesn't allow you to treat them correctly. And she said, you don't know my patients. You don't know what I do. And I said, that's correct. But I do know the Western method. And uh, I said, for example, if a patient has arthritis, we might want to look at the HLB, uh, HLAB27 gene. And along with that, we might want to look to see if they have Klebsiella or one of these other microbes that are leaking through the gut that produce an autoimmune reaction. And she said, I've never heard of this before. And I, so I, I gave her six research papers and she gave me a, and before I left, she brought her charts out on six patients and said, I have high levels of Klebsiella in these patients. Um, what do I do? And I said, you can look at a permeability test and you can check for the, a, gen, a gene profile. If, they, if this is the perfect storm, then we can begin to understand their disease, the mechanism underlying their disease, and we can treat it. And she said, let's say I do that. How would I treat it? I said, you look at, you get rid of the Klebsiella. You can use an antibiotic or a natural remedy, but you get rid of the Klebsiella or the Proteus, and then watch to see what happens in two to three months. If they're improving, now you know you can help the rest of your patients. I said, but you also have to heal the gut. You can't do anything about the gene, but you can help heal the gut. You can help remove the one of the factors that are interacting with that gene. And now you can possibly slow down or stop, maybe reverse their disease. Really interesting. Uh, but I'm not, I didn't, I don't think I got the answer on the first part. Did you ever go back to the original OB doctor? I, I did not. You know, sometimes you have to pick your battles wisely. And mm -hmm. I knew that with his attitude that I wasn't going to help him learn anything. I was going to probably upset him more. And so I decided to carry on the crusade, uh, uh -huh. but go to doctors that I thought would listen. That's always the problem when we're trying to integrate medicine. That's why it's these doctors. Maybe you should send him a family photo of uh, you and your wife and child. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be a wonderful statement. I could do that, actually. That, yes. That's a good idea. With your son's uh, grades on top of it. Right, <laughs> as a Christmas card, wishing you well. You know, the, the journey of, of trying to integrate the medicines has been a very absolutely incredible, fascinating journey. But it always hasn't always been easy. I uh, I worked with cancer patients from Cedar Sinai, and I had one of the doctors. I won't mention any names, but I I had a doctor from Cedar Sinai. While I was working with patients at my office, my secretary came in and said, "You have a doctor that needs to talk to you right away." And I said, "Okay, I'll take the call." And it was a doctor from Cedar Sinai, oncologist, and he began to chew me out, and he said. I don't want you to treat another one of my patients, and you're going to end up killing my patients. And I think this is probably about the 10th, 12th call that I received like that from other doctors. And I think at that point, I had finally had it. And I said, you know, doctor, I'm not killing your patients. I'm actually going to reverse that. And I said, what is killing them is the chemotherapy that we're using and the radiation um, at the doses they receive. I said, would you allow me 
to send you some abstracts that may help you to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he said, I don't want any abstracts from these, this quackery Chinese medicine. Or, and I said, no, these are actually abstracts from the British Journal of Medicine, from Lancet, from prestigious peer-reviewed journals. And he said, well, you can send them, but I don't guarantee you I'll read them. Hmm. And I, said, I, I went home and I think I had about 7,000 studies in my computer. And I spent most of the night trying to decide which one, which ones I would send him. And I sent him four abstracts, four studies. And the very next day, and four days later, he called me and he said, this is very compelling. I said, let me send you six more. Hmm. And he accepted that. And he read them and he called me two weeks later and he sent me five patients. So education is what it's all about. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. So let's start talking about uh, what you're finding. I always, <clears throat> when I went to China also to look at integrating medicines, I saw the s same type of hospitals where they blended beautifully. There would be a CAT scanner on one floor, an acupuncture moxibustion on another floor. They had their regular pharmacy of Western meds, and then they had a real herbal pharmacy. And everyone seemed to be doing pretty well. And that, that's where... Uh, Western medicine uh, always has the problem with all of the alternative medicines. They always say, where's the proof? So that's why in doing your research, you're coming to them with the proof. So let's, let's talk about this for a few minutes. And I talk about what I, we call uh, preparatory medicine, where I don't believe necessarily that you can prevent all illnesses or injuries, but you can certainly prepare for them. And if you do get injured or ill, you're certainly in a better condition uh, to do that, and then to get through it, and then in terms of healing by being prepared and having the right tools, you can heal better. We don't do that as well in this country. So a lot of it is coming down to lifestyle modifications now. We talk about that where we look at exercise and nutrition and stress management and sleep management. I always look at patterns of behavior and spirituality. And you mentioned epigenetics and the, and the gut biome. So let's talk about some of these things. Most people usually will say, oh, yes, I need to exercise more or I need to have better nutrition. But your research has taken you to places that show us where the actual changes occur within the body that make a difference for us. So let's talk about that. For example, you you mentioned epigenetics. Let's talk about that for a few moments and how, how you can change that through lifestyle. Okay. Um, First, uh, why don't you give a little definition? Epigenetics is a changing of the phenotypic expression of a gene without changing the gene sequence. And so what that means is that most of us are familiar with a little bit about genetics, is that genetics is the basic blueprint of who we are, who we are to become. But that doesn't answer the full question about how genes operate. With, with my son, I got into the field of epigenetics, of understanding it much better 14 years ago. And I was fascinated because it turns out that what we do, what we think, what we eat, whether we exercise or not, how we sleep, the environmental toxins, all of these talk to the epigene, and the epigene talks to the gene. So 
we're literally creating who we are on a moment-to-moment basis by what we do, our lifestyle, our diet. When you talk about, and, and when you say you were studying this 14 years ago, that was right at the beginning. We're still learning about the epigenetics. And let me answer for some people. You know, the phenotype is, as you said, the expression. So just to make it kind of clear, we have genetics, but the blue eyes or the blonde hair or the dark hair uh, or the ectomorph or the mesomorph, that's the way it expresses, the way people see us. That's the phenotype versus the genotype, which is more of the blueprint, correct? Correct. Okay, so we now have some understandings that by changing diets or by exercise, there's actually some studies out that are just starting to come out now that show that we're lengthening what we call the telomere. You want to talk about the telomere for well, a moment? The, if, if we have a rope, and at the end of that rope, we cap it so it doesn't get frayed at the end of the rope. As we use that rope more and more, the end of it gets frayed, and as, it, as that cap comes off, it starts unraveling that rope. It begins to get frayed. In the genes, we have a similar thing occurring. At, at the end of a gene, we have a telomere. If we can keep that telomere intact, and we can do that through lifestyle changes, we can increase our lifespan, but lifespan isn't important unless we have quality of life. And Good so point. when we increase quality of life, that comes about through our lifestyle and through our diet. Diet is part of lifestyle, but I kind of separate it because diet is so absolutely important. The NIH showed in a study um, some years ago, that 60% of all women's cancers and 40% of all men's cancers can be reduced dramatically by diet alone. Now, that's, that's absolutely incredible. And this is one of our leading bodies here in the United States telling us that. Um, with, with, with bad lifestyle, with no exercise, bad diet, lack of sleep, um, negative self-talk, we begin to produce an environment in the body that's conducive to disease. We, can, we produce an inflammatory state in the body. We now know that most chronic diseases have an inflammatory basis. We, and that inflammatory environment comes from, again, the things we're doing. These are all modifiable lifestyle habits that we have that we can alter, but we have to know what they are in order to alter them. And we do know what they are. And it goes back to the same thing. We're looking at diet. We're looking at stress. We're looking at environmental toxins. And we're looking at nutrition, mindset. We're looking, and sleep is very important. The idea in medicine is not just to survive, to help a patient to survive, but help them to thrive. Our, our medicine today, I think, is based on helping a patient to survive. But I, I don't think that's what medicine should be about. It should be about helping that, helping that patient to thrive, to be fully engaged in life in whatever the way they can, and not be set back by this survival mechanism we have with our me- medicines today. 
I think it's also important, uh, you know, we, we focus on the medicine and the doctors and the healers and everything. But when we start talking about lifestyle, there has to be a component where the person themselves actually take part in their own process. How do you get to, how do you work with people to get people to take part in their own process? Well, I, I first tell them that they're responsible. Um, I had a patient about two weeks ago. He came to me with an autoimmune disorder. And he, I began to talk to him. He, first of all, the patient will send me all of their past history. Sometimes it's 200, 250 pages long of labs and reports. And I'll look through all of this history and begin to develop an algorithm for that patient. And I map out everything that I see. And then when the patient comes for their first visit, I explain that most, and most times this is, the, this is true, that most of these conditions are caused by what we're doing or what we're not doing. And that he, if he begins to change his, his lifestyle, that he can, in, on his own, begin to heal himself. But the patient said to me, I don't want you to talk about my disease. I don't want to talk about my past. I just want you to get, fix me and get me better. Those are his exact words. Hmm. And I was taken back by this. And this is, this is due, I think, in part to our mo modern method of treating. You know, we, we go to a doctor, 80% of office visits um, result in a prescription drug. And many doctors, this is changing, but many doctors don't talk about lifestyle. They don't talk about negative self-talk. They don't talk about sleeping, the, the necess necessity of a good night of sleep or a good healthy meal um, or exercise. But all of these are so important. And this is what I explain to my patients. And I show them what can be done. And I give, sometimes if a patient will accept this, I give them small research papers that they can understand and they can understand how they can take responsibility for their own life and they can change their own life. Don't go to a healer uh, to be healed. Go to a healer to help you to find how to heal yourself, what, what you need to do for yourself. And I make sure that all my patients are aware of this. I'm not going to fix them. I'm only going to guide them into helping them find the way to, to heal themselves, to become healthy. Very nice. I think uh, one of the things that's interesting for me that I'm seeing when we're starting to look at the biome, which is the uh, <clears throat> bacteria in the gut, which has its own genetics. You know, we most of the genetics in our body are not our own genetics, but the genetics of the bacteria and the viruses and the fungi that live within us also. <clears throat> and when we look at all of this, one of the things that I'm starting to be aware of, as so is science, is the fact that it's not just about your lifestyle. For example, you talked earlier about having a child and the lifestyle of what you do may have an effect on your child's genetics. We obviously know that you transmit genes, but the things that you eat, 
the things that you think about, the things that you inhale, uh, the toxins that are in our environment, these things can be also transmitted to the next generation and possibly even the next generation. So I think as part of the lifestyle concept focusing for people, it's not just about themselves, it's about future generations. I would agree. And I think that it's very difficult for a parent to accept responsibility that they may have produced some of these ill effects in their children, but Mm -hmm. they weren't aware of this before. Now we're aware of this. I spoke to a, a mother about epigenetics and that the children, her children were both at prime age for epigenetic imprints. Um, What's interesting is a male between the the age of nine and 14 years old, what he does during this period of time can be transmitted down to his children and to the following, his grandchildren. And one of the reasons we can explain that is this is the time of development of the sperm. And what happens during the development of the sperm is imprinted on those sperm. High stress, high anxiety, smoking, um, alcohol, um, uh, a diet that's, that's high in, in calories. All of these can be imprinted into the sperm and carried down for two to three generations. And the interesting thing about epigenetics, if I can go on for that, on on epigenetics for just a moment, we're not stuck with epigenetics any more than we are with genetics. The gene has to be triggered in many cases to produce a disease. The epigenetics have to be triggered as well. Again, what we do, what we think, what we eat, our lifestyle will, will help talk to that epigene and that epigene will talk to the gene. And so when we When we try to talk to parents about this, it's very difficult because when I was talking to this parent and I explained that what your child does right now at the age of 9 to 14 years old can be imprinted on his child, on his children and grandchildren, her answer was, I'm just really concerned about today, not a generation from now. So that was, that hit me hard. Um, well, when I built a program for my wife and myself. I knew the impact we could have on my son's life and his children's life and his children's children's life. And so we both followed this program rigorously with epigenetics. Even if we do the wrong thing as a parent, we can correct the epigenetics after birth. Even if we've done the wrong thing in our life, we can begin correcting our epigenetics before we conceive. And this is what's impressive. This is how far medicine is coming. Wow. So, so I have a question, um, Doug. So the span of time that you had taken with your wife to prepare yourselves was a three-month span. Correct. A very rigorous, uh, I, I'm assuming, change of diet stress levels, sleep, etc. And you were very focused and you followed this very strict regimen for three and a half months before you even began to try to conceive. Correct. So just that span itself of 90 day, I call it the 90 day cleanup. 
<laughs> right, because, uh, you know, in the in the healing arts, you know, in, in in my world of healing arts, they always say ninety days is is that turning point where things begin begin to rebalance and and body mind spirit starts to flow together. So I call it a ninety day cleanup, um, and then after that, you attempt to conceive it, which you did. Now, so if individuals attempted to do that, to have a a very safe as best possible, right? People who are very conscious to come in to say, all right, well, you know, yeah, I've been done a lot of drinking. I've done some of this. I've done some of that. Would you say that three month span would be also a good time for these individuals or would it be different depending on the age category um, and what they've done in life? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what I have found is that because of biochemical individuality, everything's different for each person. If if I was if I was helping an individual, a family, where the, the mother and father were drinkers, had a terrible lifestyle, I might recommend six months, maybe mm-hmm. a year. But I don't drink, I don't I don't do any uh we eat very healthy. And so for myself and my wife, our history is is very healthy history. And I felt that three months would be an adequate time to detoxify, to build our systems, to correct methylation disorders that have to do with epigenetics. Mm. And so I felt this time period would be adequate for us, but maybe not so for every every person. Every person. And what about the the child? Um, because you, you did mention with boys, there's a certain age range that is uh, a good time to actually start sort of honing their I don't want to say clean up, but <laughs> but honing their skills or their nutritional values, et cetera, that will affect their generations. What about girls? In terms of epigenetics, usually we look at se- it's sex-linked. Hmm. What the grandfather did, what the great-grandfather did, will affect the male lineage in the family. What the grandmother did, what the mother did, will affect the daughter. And so... <laughs> we weren't I can sure. Blame everything on the male side. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't sure wrong. if we were having a boy or, or or a girl. So we had to both take care of ourselves, and we should do that anyway. Um, but myself being older, I was particularly concerned about my own epigenetics, maybe damage done by my own lifestyle um, environment, and so. When developing this program, yes, it's very important to consider who it is you're working with. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I, I went beyond this for my son. I said, if I'm studying epigenetics, let me look at if there's any research at the same time that can actually reduce neurological damage later in life. Can I do something now um, before conceiving and we gave a program to my wife during conception, and we actually gave my son part of the program after birth. Mm. Um, but I, I took it a step further. I said, can I, can I find research that helps me to reduce the, to reduce the possibility or the, uh, to reduce the risk of neurological disorders like Parkinson's and um, dementia? And the answer was, it looked like we could do something. And so into that program, I also built that into the program as well. Mm. And along with that, 
it had two effects, reduce, hopefully reducing long-term neurological problems later in his life, but also increasing cognitive function. So uh, I built that into the program as well. Wow. One of the things that's really important that's coming out of all of this, I think, is that we always looked at genetics as it's all hardwired, whatever you have, you have. But now we're learning through all of these studies that in many cases, there are switches that can be turned on and turned off and expressed in different ways. And, and this is going to change all of medicine, uh, Christina. We, we look in the past... Uh, you know, when somebody gets sick uh, with a sore throat, a bacterial tonsillitis, and everybody gets the same essential dose of an antibiotic. Now we're learning that through uh, gene testing, we're going to be able to see what antibiotic may work better on somebody. We may look at another medication like a pain medicine and say, how are they going to metabolize that pain medicine? And therefore, we either give them less dose or more dose. And it's going to be changing that way. When we look at things like uh, bleeding disorders and someone might need to be on an anticoagulant like uh, Coumadin or Warfarin, well, sometimes the dose needs to be very accurate. Well, all the time the dose needs to be very accurate. But most of the time in Western medicine, we just give people what we think is the right dose, and then we test them, and we look at their blood and bleeding studies. But now we're going to be able to, ahead of time, do genetic studies on them and and see how the uh, warfarin or the Coumadin may react to them and be metabolized, and therefore we can change our doses to talk about more personalized medicine. And I want to use that as a segue into what you're doing now, Doug in terms of personalized medicine. You talked before, when a person comes in to see you, they have a series of lab tests, they have x-rays, imaging, uh, you take a history on their diet and all of the diseases they've had, and then you go into your own program to figure out specifically for them what they need in terms of a treatment. How does that work for you? And maybe you can give us an example. Of personalized medicine. Do you want me to give you an example of a patient, maybe? That might be great if okay. you think that would be helpful to our audience. I had a, I had a company call me from back east, and they said that uh, their CEO for their company has cancer. And they said, well, we don't care about the cost. Well, whatever you can do, you do it. But we want, the end result is we want her cancer-free. We want her better. Now, in my field, I'm not allowed to treat cancer. Um, so here's how that went about. This patient had rheumatoid arthritis, severe debilitating rheumatoid arthritis, and she is 58 years old. And it got to the point where she couldn't drive her car to work. And the rheumatologist gave her prednisone, and it didn't help, so he increased the dosage of prednisone. That didn't help, so he added a second drug, uh, methotrexate. That didn't help, so he increased the dosage. Then he added uh, Embryol, a third, a third drug, and that didn't work, so he increased the dose once again. Now she's on three immune-suppressive drugs. A year and two months later, she was diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma. And this is a very complex case, and it took everything that I, all my tools to try and figure this out. If I were to try to increase your immune function 
to suppress the cancer from returning because she had a, a surgical procedure to remove the Merkel cell carcinoma. But if it returns, there's about a 95% chance that she won't survive. And so I, I couldn't think about increasing the immune system because if I increase the immune system to protect her from the Merkel cell, it caused increased symptoms in the arthritis. If I were to decrease the immune system, suppress the immune system to protect her from the arthritis, it would then allow for a recurrence of the cancer. So the research I did then was to look to see if there is an alternative method of treating this. And what I found was that MIT and some of the other universities, they were, they were looking at a method of treating uh, immune disorders like the um, rheumatoid arthritis with using a product uh, from chicken cartilage. And they use undenatured type 2 collagen. And why was they used this was because the pyrus patches in the gut will determine what we respond to internally. When we take something orally, it passes these pyrus patches, and these patches will say, this product, this, this food is okay. This chemical is okay. Um, so I, I decided to take a path. It was a double-edged sword on this patient. Going either direction could increase the condition, either condition. So what I decided was, rather than trying to increase the immune function or decrease it, I would choose the middle path, and that was to help the body adjust to the very tissue that the immune system was attacking. And so, and you can only do this through oral tolerance. That means you have to take it orally. And so we, I began, I built a, a program that was, I, I think it took me about 120 hours to build this program. But in the end, she was off all drugs and the cancer didn't return. And this is now three years later. And I saw her at a lecture I gave and I didn't even recognize her as the same person. Nice. She looked absolutely incredible. And she came up and said, I'm on no drugs. I don't have a recurrence of the cancer. And, I'm, and I, can, I can dance. And her husband wrote me uh, an email. Uh, and he said, this is the first time I've seen my wife smile in 12 years. Oh. So uh, how did I do this? I looked at her history. I looked at... I looked at a tremendous amount of history and labs on her, and I ran five unique labs that helped me determine what was going on at a molecular level, <clears throat> excuse me, at a metabolic level. And I, <clears throat> some of the tests I ran were to, one of the tests I ran was to look at the human, was to look at the microbiome. And what, what I found was that she was completely deficient in healthy bacteria. <clears throat> excuse me, but held, had healthy levels of, very healthy levels of gram-negative bacteria, which was causing some really dramatic problems in the gut. So I had to reverse that. I did a test to look at her hormone, at her hormone, uh, hormone system to see if that was involved. And what I found was that she had, the hormones were so out of balance and at the end of this profile, it showed me that the when the body metabolizes these hormones like estrogen, 
to reduce their effects on the body, to reduce their their likelihood of causing disease. I found one that was about 40 times the normal, and that particular hormone, if left at that level, would produce DNA adducts. That means it would cause DNA changes that were consistent with breast cancer. So this was also part of the problem. She wasn't aware of the breast cancer, um, the breast cancer risk, but now we could correct that as well. Um, I did another test, a genomic profile, and what I found was that she had four genetic, we called single nucleotide or single poly, uh, poly single nucleotide, single uh, nucleotide. <laughs> <laughs> I ran a genomic profile on her, and she had four SNPs. Uh, and these were SNPs that were DNA changes that elevated the level of interleukin-1, elevated interleukin-8, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And all of those are consistent with a person having arthritis. Now I found a genetic cause that she inherited these SNPs. And I had to turn those off. And the fourth one they found was interleukin-10, which helps control those, but it wasn't working either. And so we had to get all of this working again. And so those are some of the tests I use to help understand. And there were other tests as well. And in the end, I build a, a flow, of, a flow chart of all of what's occurring. And I look for common denominators. And then when I find these common denominators, I begin to build a program based on my findings. And of course, it has to include the history, history of her mother's history. And what was interesting in this, this particular patient, she had a, a history of childhood trauma. And we know through the work of Pfeiffer and William Walsh with the Walsh Research Institute that Many psychiatric, emotional, behavioral disorders have as their base an epigenetic basis. And so based on that, I ran ran another profile to see if I could determine what was going on epigenetically. And uh, when I put this whole program together, it, it took about three months to have any effect, and it was gradual. After a year, it was a pretty remarkable results. This doesn't happen with every patient. Um, you know, we're so we're moving so fast in the medical field with the sciences, but it takes an average of about 17 years from science for science to reach the clinician. In some cases, like like the human biome that you brought up, in 1907, uh, Eli Mechnikov told us about the human biome, but we didn't listen, only until recently. So that took almost 100 years for us to get it. But we are getting it. You know, you said that it takes about 17 years to get the science to the clinician. Uh, Probably they get a lot of that information early, but it takes the clinician maybe 17 years to change what they learned in medical school and change their patterns of behavior to practice differently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, w- 
I want to I want to talk as we're coming close to the end here about shifting ideas both from the uh, clinicians and medicine point of view and from the patient and uh, just a human point of view. So in one sentence, if you had the opportunity to speak to all the physicians, what would you say to them in terms of shifting ways of looking at things? And then I want you to answer the same question for how would you talk to uh, people as consumers and people that may get ill and injured. So first, uh, what would you say in one sentence to the physicians in terms of how to look at medicine? Uh, maybe I could just quote John Kennedy. He said, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look and do nothing. And I think if, nice. if we have the information, we need to use it. Um, and I would say to these doctors as well, in my field, in any field, that we rise by lifting others. That's the meaning. Mm. Okay? Yes. And in, in terms of, of patients, or not patients, but just people searching for answers, I would say that there's, a, there's an old Taoist proverb that says, when you have a disease, don't try to cure it. Find your center and you will be healed. So how does that work if you have cancer or some very degenerative disease? Well, I think we're moving in that direction now. We're moving towards a new model of medicine that's evolving, which focuses on creating health. Now, rather than prevention or rather than treating disease, creating health is likely the most effective treatment for chronic disease. And this goes far beyond treating the symptoms or preventing illness. Preparatory medicine. Preparatory medicine. There you go. Doug, thank you for all of this. We're coming close to the end of the show, and we would love to have a health tip from you. What do you got for us? I think some of the things we take for granted. I, 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 did, a research, I did some research about two years ago on what, what are people interested in learning. And I, I looked at the internet, and CBS did a special uh, report, and they showed that about 93 million Americans are doing research online to help them with their conditions. And what I think we have to be aware of is that when we're doing these searches online, many times the information is not based on anything concrete, no real research. And if we can go back to basics, diet and lifestyle, we now know that diet and lifestyle can create amazing changes in our health if done correctly. And correctly means specifically for you. If we know through genetics, epigenetics, that we can, we can create our own life we literally are changing our body moment to moment by what we do. If we can go back, now that we know that epigenetics is modified by our nutrition, by our exercise, by stress, by sleep, and by toxins, if we to work with each one of these for nutrition, a whole, whole fresh food that's organic, now, that's simple, 
but doing it is not so simple, right? I understand that. Um, but if we can change our diets, make small changes, fresh organic foods that are fresh, not canned, not packaged, um, exercise 30 minutes a day. The NIH showed that, that if we do 30 minutes of exercise a day, we can reduce our risk of cancer by 30 to 40%. That sounds ridiculous, but that's what they came up with. Sleep. We, we need to make sure we get eight hours of sleep a night. And if you can't, you need to understand why. Always ask the question, why? If you're not asking yourself, ask your doctor, why? Um, toxins. We're inundated with toxins. We have, I think, about just over 80,000 registered environmental toxins. They're in our foods. They're in our, in our makeup. They're in the sprays we spray for bugs in our house, in our yard. Change all of that. Get rid of all these toxins. Get rid of makeups that have the phthalates and the parabens. All of these makeups, um, many of them carry these, these detrimental toxins. Go back to what we know best. Diet and lifestyle. And find health. And then I think you're set to have healthy children. And their children will be healthy. And you'll live a long and healthy life. I'm very grateful to our very special guest, Douglas Kretsch, doctor of uh, oriental medicine, licensed acupuncturist, homeopath, lecturer, teacher, and a pioneer in integrating medicine and changing uh, to personalized behavior. Thank you so much, uh, Doug, for spending the time with us and honoring our community. We so appreciate your time and and your gifts to the community and to the world and making a stand and creating this change. And of course, uh, to you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, um, for another wonderful show. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And you can follow him on Facebook at The Medical Guide. And you can also connect with Dr. Douglas Kretsch on his website, um, drkretschomd.com, drkretschomd.com. And of course, uh, we always look forward to your feedbacks and feedback and comments. If this is a month from now, if it's a year from now, two years from now, um, as long as we're up and running, you can make a comment or ask any questions and we will be sure to get it to our speakers or um, answer them for you. If you're listening to this on any device, you give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And we'd also like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for voting for our shows. We are so delighted to have made it into the Podcast Awards again uh, for a third year. And um, we shall have the results, uh, though the voting ends uh, this week on June 12th. We shall have the results uh, several weeks following and let you know how we've done. Thank you so much again. And we look forward to having you with us again next time. Namaste. Eighty 
to 90% of the people in the world today in the 21st century have this problem of candida overgrowth. And you know, what has led to, you know, it's the 21st century with antibiotics, chlorinated water, too much carbohydrates, too much sugar, too much yeasts and sweets that has created this overgrowth within us of candida that leads to a plethora of problems that is really a common denominator between